Hey folks, welcome to the Aspire Natural Health podcast. My name is Dr. Tim Gersmar. At Aspire Natural Health, we are experts at treating digestive issues, autoimmune disease, and other hard to treat cases. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you interesting and informative discussions and topics, whether that's with us or other experts and interesting people. Listen, we want to reach as many people as possible and help as many lives as we can. This podcast is and always will remain free of charge. So we'll bring you the expertise, but we do need your help. There are two simple things that you can do to help us in our efforts to reach as many people as possible. Whether this is your first podcast or one of many, if you found these podcasts helpful, please do two things. The first is share it with any friends or people you know who might find it valuable. Again, it's free. Please drop them a line and let them know about the podcast. The second thing, which is really important, is to please head on over to iTunes and give us preferably a five-star review. Whatever you think we're worth, we're striving here to produce a five-star podcast. And it would really help if you would take a minute to drop us a five-star review. That way, iTunes ranks us highly. Other people can see and hear about us, and we can succeed in spreading the message of how to be informed about your health and how to get some help. So please share this podcast with a friend, head on over to iTunes, and leave us a five-star review. All right? Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hey, folks. It's Dr. Tim Gersmar, Aspire Natural Health. Welcome to another podcast. Excited today to be talking to one of my classmates. We actually went to school together and uh, the different paths that docs take when they come out of school. And we're going to be talking about a subject that I think is so incredibly important, uh, so completely uncovered by uh, most of the medical field, and yet has the potential to change the face of healthcare, you know, for for the next generation and generations to come. And so we're talking uh, with Dr. Caitlin O'Connor, she's a naturopathic doctor like myself, and uh, who specializes in uh, all aspects of pregnancy and, and childcare. So we're going to get all of her opinions. And we're going to take a special emphasis today to talk a little bit about pre- conception care. So, you know, most women out there get that they should have regular checkups and that they should, you know, be watching out for themselves while they're pregnant so that something doesn't happen to the baby or they don't, you know, inadvertently hurt the baby. But what's a really new concept for for many women and men out there too is the whole idea of pre-conception care or what to do before you get pregnant and the fact that what you do before you are pregnant actually can affect the health and well-being not only of the woman herself while she's pregnant and afterwards, um, the health of the baby while the baby is developing, but what we found is that it can actually affect um, the health of the individual throughout their life. So most people don't understand. We, we, we've heard genetics and that genetics affect us and you can have bad genes and you can have good genes. But what's still a relatively new concept for many people is this idea of epi genetics, epigenetics. So the easiest way to understand this is you can imagine that your genetics are like the encyclopedia of you. They contain all the information that makes up all the different aspects of your body, from the cells to your hair color, your eye color, all these d diseases that you may be more vulnerable to or less vulnerable to. All of that is contained in the encyclopedia of you or your genes. But just because something is written in the encyclopedia doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be read or 
are made into reality. And we have this thing called epigenetics, which is how your body reads your encyclopedia. So we have essentially paper clips, which can keep parts of your encyclopedia closed so that your body can't read it and, and make it happen. And we have, you know, sticky notes and highlighters, which can emphasize certain parts of that genome and uh, make it much more likely that the body will read that and turn it into something. And it's that at that level of the paper clips and the sticky notes that our behavior, what we do in our day-to-day -day lives, impacts not only our own health, but can set the health of future generations. So with that, I will say, hi, Caitlin, thanks for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So how did you know that you wanted to get into the whole issue of childcare and working with pregnant moms and all these other aspects? Oh, man, that's a great question. Uh, I don't really have a great origin story. I feel like a lot of naturopathic <laughs> doctors have like yep. this amazing experience or origin story where for right. me it was just something that I was always was just like, oh, yeah, this is what I want. This is what I want to do. Like from when I was in school, I did the uh, midwifery, the naturopathic midwifery program uh -huh, uh -huh. when I was at Bastyr. Um and I was really involved in things like starting the pediatrics club and getting advanced pediatrics on the curriculum. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, I really, you know, the the idea of being sort of more of a family doctor, mm -hmm. I couldn't sort of conceive of that without having a really good understanding of sort of that part of the life cycle, right? Mm -hmm. Like feeding mm -hmm. the um, woman before she's pregnant and then during pregnancy and then Ideally, I don't, I'm not uh, catching any babies right now. I've been mm -hmm. off. I haven't done any midwifery for probably like the last six or seven years as I've been doing sort of my own family stuff. Uh -huh. But um, uh -huh. I sometimes get to attend versus an assistant. And that's pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, but being with the baby as they're born and then taking care, I really feel like the mom baby are just one unit mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. for at least a year. I consider postpartum to be a two year period. Okay. But mm -hmm. for that, you know, initial three months, there's no, you know, there's no mom and baby. There is just mom and baby. Right. Um, right. We deliver our babies kind of from an evolutionary standpoint. Like if you compare how well developed our infants are when they come out mm -hmm. compared to sort of the, um, independence and development of our monkey relatives, yeah. we deliver our babies about three months too premature. Mm -hmm. And the reason we do that is we kind of did this like trade-off, like, okay, you guys want to have big brains. That's cool and all, but there's no way those big brains are going to be fully developed and make it out of our pelvis. Right, right. So the way that that sort of developed was we'll give birth to these babies that really aren't ready to come out. So when we have parents that are like, Oh my God, I can't put my baby down. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, my baby wants to be attached to my body 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm, and I'm thinking, mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think they should be on the inside. Like that fourth trimester piece is so sort of critical for me. And that's actually, I think, um, even where we're going to see sort of more of this epigenetic information come out is like, what was that, you know, fourth trimester? Like, what, even things that happen sort of during the birth, how do those sort of, program us moving forward yeah um so yeah and then you know for kids the the best thing about the 
with working with kids and what I kind of joke about is they tend to be easier than adults. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> For a number of reasons. Sure. One is there's less layers to the onion, right? So right. like if you're working with somebody who's, you know, in their 50s, in their 60s, lifetime of chronic illness, there are so many layers to that onion that we need to peel through to get to the point where they're really able to sort of express that vital wellness. Mm-hmm. Kiddos, you know, certainly I would say we're seeing kiddos with more complex illnesses sooner, more complicated layers. But in general, and compared to the adult population, I feel like they've got less layers. Um, so they're, they respond better. They respond great to sort of smaller changes. They respond in a shorter period of time. Oftentimes, you know, if you get to work with a family that's really committed, people will do things for their kids that there's no way they would do for themselves. Right. Totally. They yep. will make those diet changes. They will make those lifestyle changes. They'll clean up the environment of the house. That's, you know, the other great thing about working with this population is you really have the opportunity to work with people when they're in this, like, uniquely motivated state. Like, mm-hmm. people will do anything for their babies. They'll mm-hmm. do anything for their kids. Right. Um, so it's kind of like this little wedging point where you can kind of get in and shift the trajectory of the whole family's health because, you know, usually if we have a kiddo where we're like, hey – Let's trial the kid on this particular diet, for example. Mm-hmm. My recommendation is always the whole family has to be on board. This right. kid can't be getting special meals. That's not going to work for anybody. Like right. everybody's right. kind of got to do it together. And then, you know, miraculously, it's like, oh, we were doing this for the kid's eczema, but mom's migraines went away and dad's joint pain is better. And you're like, hey, yeah, everybody's on board. <laughs> um, right. No, that's so the ma- I love that piece as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely the magic. So, um, you know, we always joke, right, that the the, the general trend, uh, and yours might be slightly different, but, you know, mom comes in for an issue, and then mom's doing a little bit better, and then we see the kids, because then, okay, they've got some things, then we treat them, and then the old joke is, then, you know, grandma comes in, because, oh my gosh, what have you been doing for the family, and then the dog gets involved, and then kind of last but not least... Dad kind of grudgingly comes in and says, yeah. "Oh yeah, you you've helped everybody else. Maybe maybe I need a little something too." Yeah, you know? yeah. so usually, usually they're the last. That's another reason why I like to specialize in women and children's health is <laughs> <laughs> men are usually the last to come on board, and I kind of joke, uh, sometimes the least least compliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. Well, it can be. And, and, you know, my my thought process, because, again, being a guy and just trying to think through this and obviously we're not stupid or anything, but taking that evolutionary or ancestral lens, I started to think about, like, what is the deal? Why are guys, why why won't they admit to being sick? What's and part of it is cultural, of course, that men need to be strong and asking for help is a bad thing. Crying is bad. Yeah, like, you know, so obviously we've got that layer and I've definitely seen, you know, everyone wants to trash on the younger generations, but I've definitely seen uh, where they're involved. The the younger men um, tend to be, you know, more connected and a little more open minded and everything. But from an evolutionary perspective, I was thinking about it. And, and we look at most other animals, whether it's, again, like our monkey relatives or lions or any other kind of group animal. And we can see that there's a real need for the male or the males to be very strong. And if they're, you know, they're injured, they tend to hide their injury and they have to put on a really strong 
you know, brave face and everything. Um, because if they don't, you know, they're likely to get pushed out of the group or lose their position or, you know, be abandoned or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so I have to think, you know, yes, there's the cultural piece. And I think we can we are and we can change our cultural piece. Um, but is there some of that ancestral like you know, minimize and deny that there's a problem essentially until the problem is so bad that you can't you can't minimize it anymore. And I, I believe that there is some of that uh, evolutionary hardwiring in men where I, would, I believe yeah. I would believe yeah. that that's I always uh, I at this point really don't see male patients for my practice. And mm -hmm. I sort of joke that if I had the had figured out the um secret key to getting men to listen to my advice and do what I say, then I'd just right. write a book and be a millionaire. <laughs> but instead, I refer them to male right. practitioners. Right. For the most part, I actually have right. a, another female doc who works really well with male practitioners in my um, yep. neighborhood that I started to refer out to as well, just because nice. I'm busy enough with my population. And I'm in Denver, and there's mm -hmm. really like two or three other NDs in the whole city who feel mm -hmm. kind of comfortable treating kids under the age of two. Yeah. So, and yeah. nobody really wants to touch pregnant ladies. Right. Uh, whereas I'm like, bring it, bring them on. So, so why got, is that? Why is that? Why are other doctors, why are they afraid to deal with young kids? Why are they afraid to deal with pregnant women? What, what's going on there? I think there's a couple different things. The, the, the younger kids, I think part of it is treating a nonverbal population mm. is tricky because mm -hmm. they can't tell you what's going on. Um, and that's kind of true for kids up until like seven or eight, really. They don't really have a good idea of like, you know, to them, they could say my, they might be saying my tummy hurts, but tummy to kids means anything from the pelvis to, you know, anything from the pelvis to the clavicle. Right. Uh, you know, there's a right. lot of, um, somatis somatization that's going on mm -hmm. sometimes so they might be saying you know my head hurts but what they mean is i'm sleepy mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. they're kind of wild <laughs> <laughs> some people are like i don't mm -hmm. want to see kids because they trash my office right right um it can be a little bit challenging because you can't treat the kid if the parents aren't on board and right. a lot of it is like parent management you get into a little bit of like behavioral expectations mm -hmm. and talking with parents about parenting styles which mm -hmm. i think can be tricky for some people not mm -hmm. everybody feels comfortable navigating that territory right um so i do think you know for the kids it makes sense that if you're going to do kids you want to have at least a little bit of extra training to really understand you know how do things present differently mm -hmm. um what are red flags that would be different uh yeah. for pregnant women i think there's like this myth about like malpractice doesn't cover you if you're treating pregnant women. Mm. Um, but that's actually not the case. You just don't treat the pregnancy. So if you're not like a midwife or an OB or mm -hmm. a nurse practitioner or a certified nurse midwife, you're not doing the sort of OB, you're not doing the sort of checks, you're not managing the pregnancy, but you can right. still see women and like care for them overall. Right. And I think there's also this fear, like if you look at like our culture is very risk adverse when it comes to pregnancy. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. we kind of have this weird idea that pregnancy is like this extremely fragile state. Um which is actually not the case. Like, you know, you'll have people come in like, oh my God, can I drink kombucha when I'm pregnant? <laughs> right. Like, oh right. I, you know, 
I walked by somebody who was smoking a cigarette. Like, is my baby going to be okay? And I'm like, listen, we all made it this far. Right. Like this, <laughs> there would not be so many billions of us on the planet. Right. If it was really such a sort of fragile system, we're actually right. surprisingly like robust and can deal with a huge number of environmental inputs. Right. But I think that's where people also get scared is they're like, I don't want to, you know, screw something up and mess up a pregnancy, which like I get, obviously, if you don't feel comfortable and don't know what you're doing. Right. Um, but, you know, there's there's a lot more, I think, resiliency to that population that than people sort of understand. Yeah, I mean, I would agree that I think everyone from women themselves who are pregnant to, you know, like, I guess everyone who interacts with them has this kind of, you know, that you're like a hothouse flower and you can, you know, if, if everything is not perfect, um, something's going to go terribly wrong. And, and yeah. yeah, you know, we know again, looking ancestrally that, um, you know, women would pretty much go and do everything while they were pregnant. I mean, not, of course, not being stupid or not, you know, doing things that are frankly dangerous or could hurt you. But I mean, it's it's like, you know, they were physically active. Uh, they were, you well, know, yeah. running, running around doing all sorts of chop, stuff. Chop you know? wood, carry water. Right. So, um, yeah. So I would. Well, what's uh, interesting uh, about mm -hmm. that is sort of during my midwifery training, I mm -hmm. went to the island of Vanuatu, which, um, only I think I think only people who watch the show Survivor know where Vanuatu is. <laughs> pretty much its only claim to fame. Right. It's a pretty small island off of New Zealand, mm -hmm. um, and it's actually like a cluster of islands. Mm. Like, uh, um, and women would come in, and I sort of was doing a internship at the only hospital in the entire sort of country, mm. and women would come in from these sort of distant islands to have their babies. And we, mm -hmm. it was so interesting because I had come from, you know, I was doing my training in birth centers in Seattle, mm -hmm. which was a very specific population. Sure. And we would have, you know, first time moms laboring 24 hours, 48 hours, you know, really mm. struggling to get their babies out. Mm. Um, the women of Vanuatu, first time moms, they never had labors lasting longer than 12 hours. Hmm. So extremely rare. Hmm. These women were coming in and just, you know, the, the they did have a lot more babies. So, you know, some of the women were coming in seventh, eighth baby. Right. And they were just, you know, literally being delivered on the boat on the way. <laughs> right. Sure. But the first time moms um, really we didn't see that prolonged labor and that prolonged kind of um, first stage of labor. The pushing always under an hour. I never hmm. saw a second stage of labor last longer an hour than when I was there. And hmm. we thought I was there with um, two of my other colleagues and good friends and, and we had hmm. some sort of theories about it. One mm -hmm. of which is these women stayed really active. They were farming, mm -hmm. they were walking miles mm -hmm. and miles per day. Mm -hmm. They were mm -hmm. squatting, they weren't sitting in chairs, they weren't at desks. Right. Um, so that was one piece. And then I also think there was a psychological piece of they knew they didn't really have other options. I mean, mm. uh, epidurals were only used if it was an emergency situation and somebody needed a C-section. Right. There right. was not, you know, there was no epidural for pain relief. That was just not a thing. Mm, mm -hmm. um, there wasn't mm -hmm. the resources. There was very, very few OBs on staff. The labor ward was mostly run by midwives. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just not, not an option. Uh, so I think part of it was also psychological where they're like, we have to get through. Like, there's no, there's no over, there's no around, there's only through. Right. Let's just, you know, because I mean, so much of of birth is that mind game and that um, staying in the moment and not getting caught up in the fear cycle and not second guessing yourself. Right. And they also all came with like 
a group of moms and aunties mm. had all delivered mm-hmm. their babies mm-hmm. who had all delivered their babies without uh, pain medication. And they were also kind of mean to them. Uh, <laughs> okay, please tell me they more. They would kind of just get in their face and be like, no screaming, push your baby out. Um, and we were like, oh, this is so different from like, you know, the doula Seattle <laughs> model where we're kind of holding hands. Right. Uh-huh sips of water, uh-huh. you know, being very calm and gentle. I mean, these women were, you know, smacking their nieces and daughters around and just saying, like, get it get it over with. Push yeah. this baby out. There's in- no other options. Interesting. Um, Interesting. It was so fascinating to yeah. sort of see this huge cultural difference and, like, then see how, you know, physically things were different. They also had, like, 98% breastfeeding rates. Sure. No problem with breast. I mean, you would see these, again, First time moms, a lot of times younger moms, 18, 19, 20, push their babies out and their baby would be nursing within the first 10 minutes with Mm. no, I mean, there was no lactation consultants. Right. There was no, uh, but you didn't see, you know, we have this sort of epidemic of breastfeeding problems in the United States that I think a lot of it is culturally is one, we don't see there was sort of this generational break where like if you're in our generation like born in the 70s and 80s like Mm -hmm. you didn't Mm -hmm. see women breastfeeding Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. it was rare to be my mom was kind of a hippie so she nursed me for a while but i think a while back then i think i got like you know six months nine months Um, yeah i was gonna say i think i got about two or three months for me i know my mom tried and lots of stuff and but yeah you know and and, and... that was considered like a lot Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and certainly women weren't like, you know, nursing out in public, like God forbid they were, you know, right. going out in separate rooms or staying home or like trying to, you know, now we've got like nursing covers, um, which I think is great if that's what somebody needs in order to feel sort of comfortable and feed their baby. Everybody right. feed their baby any way the baby gets fed. Right. I don't, right. you know, that's right. sort of a personal choice. But I also think there's something to be said for seeing it in public and like seeing your family and like having this generational knowledge of like, oh, this is how you hold a baby. This is what a baby looks like when right. it's nursing. Right. This is sort of what's normal. And now we kind of have this whole generation of women who haven't, you know, seen breastfeeding. They don't know right. what it's supposed to look like. They right. don't know what normal is. Right. And there's other options. It's like if you're living on an island in Vanuatu, you can't like walk over to, you know, Whole Foods or Safeway right. and get formula. Like right. Right. it's not there. So you right. got to figure it out. Right. It's either you or another woman that's, you know, that, that, that someone you know who might be able to help out. And that's yeah. pretty much it. Or, you so. know, there was a very small subset of the population that had the money to buy formula. Mm. Um, but mm-hmm. because of the World Health Organization sort of regulation, mm. um, they weren't even, you know, the hospitals didn't give out any formula. It was really not available for sale because the uh, water safety um, oh, kids right. will die, you know, and this, this was like one of the sort of tragedy tragedies of, um, formula introduction in developing countries right. where babies would die of, um, different parasitic affections and, you know, amoebas and things like that because right. they didn't have access to clean water. Right. But women were being told, oh, you should use formula. It's better. It's Western. And you would have, you know, epidemics of babies dying. Right. Um, which is like a whole nother tangent on like the dirty politics of Nestle in the formula world, which I'm right. not Right, right. Now. 
Right. I was just going to say for anybody who hasn't heard the story, you, you can go check it out. But but basically, you know, the formula company started pushing formula in poor areas and how much superior it was. And women started making the change. But of course, just like Caitlin said here, you, you know, the water quality is really suspect and they weren't told that it needed to be boiled and sanitized before it was mixed with formula. And so essentially they were instead of giving their babies um you know, breast milk, uh, they were giving them dirty formula. And then, yeah, a lot of babies got sick and died. So, you know, unless you have clean water to mix formula with, uh, you know, not a smart proposition, basically. Yeah. Right. And that's not, you know, anytime we start talking about formula and breast milk, I think, you know, inevitably people start to feel a little bit judged by their choices. And, you know, my feeling is not this isn't about sort of individual women and like right. individual people's ability or not right. ability or decision right. not to breastfeed, but it's really looking at like the cultural norms that surround it. And the fact that the reason, you know, the majority of women who are told they're not able to breastfeed, mm-hmm. it's because they didn't get good support. They didn't right. get good, um, right. support early on. Uh, practices like uh, IV fluids in labor can affect breastfeeding, mm. you know, undiagnosed mm. tongue ties, mm. and even just simple things like having to go back to work and not having right. a place to pump. Right. I mean, we right. don't, we kind of set up this expectation like, oh, breast is best, but then we don't actually set up the cultural framework to support that. Right. And then women kind of feel like, oh, you know, Something it's, was wrong with me. I right. didn't make enough milk. Blah blah blah. And I'm like, it's not. It's not a personal issue. It's really we have to step back and look, use that wide lens and be like, how have we disrupted the sort of evolutionary flow of this relationship? Right. Um. And how is that impacting things versus like making it about the individual and like trying to make people feel bad we don't that's that's never never the intention no no and I think you know I I was going to bring this up but I'm glad you did sort of when we look at sort of your Vanuatu experience which I would say you know is much more representative of human history um, and what sort of a normal quote-unquote or natural delivery would look like would be you know relatively short delivery without complications without need for pain medicine without um, you know a high cesarean rate without any of these things and then immediately on to breastfeeding with you know minimal to no complications and there may be women out there listening or you know just a lot of this can bring up a lot of shame and guilt like well I didn't do that or I didn't have that experience and you know am I uh, you know you know less of a woman or not or not a real woman or whatever because I wanted pain medicine or I did this or I did that and, and to your point it's it's none of those things each individual has to make choices but where this is really illustrative, I think, is is in the cultural piece. You know, again, we have a whole generation or even two where sort of the traditional knowledge around, um, you know, being pregnant, giving birth and what to do with a young baby after that have, have all but vanished for most people. And so, you know, we have women who have never seen uh, someone deliver a baby except on TV or in the movies. And I'm sure you have a lot to say about the, the depiction oh, yeah. <laughs> in the movies, you know, or on TV. Um, it's always like, oh, my God, my water broke. Oh, my God, it's an emergency. One right. second later, the baby's sliding out. And right. I'm like, eh, it's not <laughs> typically typically how it goes down. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't really happen that way. Or, um, you know, and, and I always say, you know, this was my my wife's experience, too. Um, so we had natural childbirth, we wanted to try for it, and everything worked out fine. And, and that's what happened. Um, but 
was, uh, you, you know, that my wife essentially trained for childbirth. You know, we, we talked physically about making sure that you're in good shape and you have a good strong core. All the abdominal and pelvic muscles are in good shape to assist there. And then psychologically sort of training yourself to, to be ready to deal with an uncomfortable situation, like you said, and not panic and just, you know, stay centered and, and make your way through the process. And I know she had said, you know, if I hadn't prepared myself for this, I, I don't know that I would have gotten through it. And and I feel bad because the vast, vast majority of women get re get no preparation whatsoever. Um, you know, again, they haven't seen uh, many, most of them, uh, you know, examples of childbirth. And the ones that they have are those highly medicalized uh, examples. And so then mentally, physically, they're not prepared. Mentally, they're not prepared. And, and the vision that they have of what their birth is going to look like has been shaped by, you know, what they've seen on TV and movies and maybe some other relatives or friends or, or something having their babies in a highly medicalized environment. So... Did you guys have midwives? Oh, uh, we did. Yeah, we had, um, you know, we're lucky we're here in Seattle. So we had naturopath midwives uh, involved in the process. And we also did have a doula um, and found that uh, very helpful. Can you, for people who don't know, uh, what's the difference between a midwife and a doula? Yeah, I get this question all the time. And for mm -hmm. somebody like in the mix, I'm like, uh, duh, they're like two totally different things. <laughs> right, but not so. Uh, so let's back. Day, and it's it's such a common question. Like I get asked that question probably on a weekly basis. So let me so back up. A midwife oh. is a healthcare provider. Okay. So the midwife's job is to monitor the health of safety of mom and baby, to be present during the delivery, mm -hmm. um, to provide postpartum care and make actual clinical decisions, okay. right? So you don't need a, you wouldn't have some people be like, well, I want an OB and a midwife. And I'm like, well, that doesn't, that doesn't really make sense because okay. they have the same job. Their okay. job is to manage the health of the mom and baby. Mm -hmm. Now, midwives often will take on sort of additional roles. They're definitely, I think, a little bit more holistic in the fact that they're looking at that sort of overall health, so mm -hmm. not just, you know, blood pressure, growth of baby, you mm -hmm. know, screening for mm -hmm. things like gestational diabetes, mm -hmm. but they're also looking at, you know, mental, emotional, spiritual mm -hmm. aspects of care. Mm -hmm. um, midwives mm -hmm. have, you know, I think the prenatal and postpartum care, like the birth is one part of it, yeah. but the prenatal and postpartum care delivered by midwives is just above and beyond. And I right. think especially we can get into sort of another topic that I love, which is postpartum care. I think mm -hmm. that's like the great forgotten abyss of women's health. It's kind of like you do all these visits sort of prenatally, you really get pumped up and prepare for the birth. And then if you're having a sort of hospital birth, it's like, okay, cool. See you in six weeks. Right. And it's like these next six weeks are probably going to be one of the most challenging times of your entire life. And you're just sort of floundering by yourself. Whereas mm -hmm. with midwifery care, like I'll say with, um, I had a home birth and my midwife was at my house twice a day for the first five days because we were having some issues mm. with uh, my kiddo latching on. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Like, and that's just normal. That's just par for the course. And I'm right. like, you don't get that. Like, I would have been one of those moms who, if I was discharged to go home from the hospital, didn't have support, didn't have somebody really holding me, mm -hmm. walking me through it, mm -hmm. helping me with latch, mm -hmm. you know, cheerleading. Mm -hmm. I've been like, oh, my baby just doesn't latch. Right. I won't be able to nourish or right. I'm going to have to exclusively pump right. uh, because we're never latching. Um, so anyway, to get back, midwives do all of that. Yeah. They're amazing. Um, 
midwives are regulated differently in every state, but typically you have certified nurse midwives who can work uh, in a hospital-based setting Mm -hmm. and only work in a hospital-based setting, but Mm. in states you have certified nurse midwives who also will do birth centers and Mm -hmm. home birth. Okay. Uh, For example, in Colorado, certified nurse midwives run, uh, we have a couple birth centers here and those all can only be run by certified nurse midwives. Mm. Then you have certified professional midwives, which is probably like the most uh, sort of recognized national certification for home birth midwifery. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so certified professional midwives mostly will do home birth, but in some states like Washington state, mm-hmm. the uh, birth centers are run by certified professional midwives. So mm. who runs the sort of out of hospital birth centers varies from state to state. Mm. Okay. Um, but those are the two sort of major designations. Um, doulas provide support. So doulas don't make clinical decisions. Doulas don't run tests. Doulas, Mm -hmm. truly, if they're working within their scope, aren't going to be making recommendations for, um, you know, herbal medicine or supplements or Mm -hmm. interventions. Mm -hmm. They're they're providing the emotional support Mm -hmm. for the Mm -hmm. uh, family, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We talk about a lot of times. Um, doula being sort of the the guide that can help the other support people in the picture, husbands, partners, wives, etc., mm-hmm. uh, support the birthing woman and tell them what to do because right. most of the time, like we haven't seen that before, right. and they can be the person in the room that's like, "Hey, I've been to you know a couple hundred births. This is totally normal. Right. We're all good, everybody." Right. Um, because I think again, that's part of it. My dad once asked me, he's like, "What's the deal with doulas? Why do people need a doula?" And I'm right. like, "Well, because if you lived in Vanuatu, you had your mom and your posse of aunties, right." Uh-huh. would come with you who all were familiar with unmedicated childbirth and would right. sort of guide you through it. Right. And we don't have that village anymore. Right. A lot of women are sort of isolated. They're not near family or mm-hmm. they might have family nearby that hasn't had a similar birthing experience or, you know, hasn't experienced unmedicated childbirth or isn't interested in that or isn't supportive of that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I kind of think of doula as like, you're hiring your wise old auntie who right. would have been there with you in the village, but right. we don't have that anymore. So right. that person is sort of that repository of knowledge of like, here are some things you can do to, you know, help assist. And uh, this is still what's normal and right. everything's fine. Right. Um, so that's sort of the main difference. Right. And I'll say, you know, I know, again, everyone's different, but I know my wife definitely did find the doula useful, especially for our first child where again you know it's my you know my wife was a normal western woman had never seen childbirth before um obviously like did a lot of reading and research and tried to to be um you know a really educated uh new mom and you know what the labor experience looked like and everything but when it actually came time for the labor just having someone there, like you said, who was like, you know, when it's like, well, what was that? And it's like, oh, no problem. That's what this is. Don't worry about it. Everything's going great. You know, she was, our doula was in touch with the midwife and just letting her know, hey, we're about here and there and helping to coordinate what was going on. And um, for me, as the dad in the mix, just not having to be the one that was responsible for, for taking care of my wife and watching things, but being able just to be more part of the experience or being directed, hey, can you go get this? She could use this or that or do this or that. It was really helpful and it smoothed and made the experience a lot more pleasant. So I know a lot of people are like, you know, do I really need to spend the money on a doula? And the answer is, well, of course you don't. You do whatever you want. Uh, But again, you know, to your point, 
historically the woman would be with with a group of older women who who took on that role and without that um you, you know who's doing that so yeah i mean and if we even come at it from a purely research-based perspective mm-hmm. there's actually research studies showing the efficacy of doulas mm-hmm. um there's a great uh kind of the godmother of the modern doula penny simkin i think she has a quote to the effect that like if if, if a doula was a drug, it would be considered unethical not to prescribe it. <laughs> nice. Because nice. there's yeah. such, you know, decreased um, uh, rate of C-section, decreased right. rate of medication use, increased right. sort of maternal satisfaction. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. just, if we don't even like, if we just want to be total research nerds about it and not think about sort of the overall cultural and... Right. Anthropological context, we would just be like, right. it's a well-researched intervention. <laughs> right. I was going to say, you know, for, for the people who are like, show me the data, it's like it, it does exist. There there's it is. Yeah. So. And there's also great data. I want to take – I want to uh, point this out because I think it's very interesting, especially because mm-hmm. I know you have a lot of followers who are sort of more in sort of the paleo and primal mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of women who are such like hardcore, like paleo, everything, and then it comes time to give birth and they're like – just kind of sign up for the sort of OB experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm like, you guys, look at the data. Like, right, right. if we like take everything else out, and if your goal is to have a unmedicated childbirth with decreased risk of C-section mm-hmm. and optimal outcomes for mom and babies, that's midwifery care. And it's mm-hmm. out of hospital midwifery care mm-hmm. as long as women remain sort of low risk and mm-hmm. are with well-trained midwife and I know depending on what state you're in some women don't even have that option yeah um and that's again a whole nother conversation where I feel like you know we could be saving our healthcare system billions of dollars right uh the maternal mortality in the United States is embarrassing if you compare it to the rest of the developed world and it's because we don't uh promote midwifery care Mm -hmm. and it's you know again we don't want to necessarily put our get our uh conspiracy <laughs> on and right. start, but it really is a lot to do with sort of lobbying and healthcare lobbying and who's spending the money and who's right. setting the policy. Right. Um, but I would encourage your sort of listeners who are pregnant or considering pregnancy to kind of take that same critical lens that you would put on the food industry mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, how you move your body and apply that to sort of how you're accessing your healthcare. And mm-hmm. I think Mm-hmm. Again, when people get pregnant, they're like, oh, my God, I want to do everything right. I'm just going to kind right. of – Right. I want to just do sort of what's, what, what's the status quo. I'm going right. to, like, stick with it. Right. And I'm like, just, you know, do some research. I really love um, Ina Mae Gaskin. She's sort of the the mother of modern sort of home birth midwifery. She's mm-hmm. got some great books. Mm-hmm. I like uh, Ina Mae's Guide to Childbirth. It's mm-hmm. a fabulous one. Mm-hmm. Rich Lake has a great movie, The Business of Being Born. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, The Business yeah. of Being Born. Okay. It's a mm-hmm. great one because mm-hmm. it's looking at the industry and it's yeah. looking at sort of the research and the statistics and really saying like, hey, if your goal – and everybody's goals are different. So sure. I think it's fine. If somebody's a goal, they're like, you know what? My goal is to run in – get the epidural as soon as possible. And if I, if that results in a C-section doesn't really concern me, right? That's fine. That's all totally your choice. But I think the problem is women have this feeling like, Oh, I want to have unmedicated childbirth. I would like to sort of decrease my risk of a C-section, mm-hmm. but then they kind of go with the standard OB care and that's not setting you up for success. Right. Right. Um, if your goal is to have an unmedicated childbirth, if your goal is to decrease the risk of interventions, 
you're really in the wrong place if you're a low risk woman with an OB. Mm-hmm. You should really, you know, as long as you meet the criteria, midwifery care is sort of the way to go. And again, the depth of prenatal and postpartum care just mm-hmm. blows blows it out of the water. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about um, preconception care. I know, we kind of said we were going to talk about preconception and then just like dove past. <laughs> there's so much. Well, there's so much here. Honestly, I mean, I know you, you know you spend your days talking about this uh, till you're blue in the face, rightly so. And there's so many pieces. And and again, it comes down to the very fact that sort of birth has been sort of excised or taken out of ev- people's everyday lives. And there's no real, we get some sex education, there's another talk all, all by oh, yeah. itself. But, you know, we don't really get much education. Again, for a lot of people, it's, it's through TVs and movies, and maybe they've seen a relative or, or a family member or something, uh, you know, in the hospital most of the time after they've given birth, kind of seeing the baby and everything. And so yeah. um, there's so much we just it's need. So we need to educate people yeah. about. Yeah. I would, I, you know, it is what I talk about all day, but I could probably talk about it for weeks. Given the, <laughs> given yeah. the opportunity, yeah. I'll just keep talking. Yeah. Um, so yeah. let's, yeah. So the preconception care, yeah. we were talking a little bit before we started recording about, you know, in my dream world, mm-hmm. I would start working with people a year prior to conception. Mm-hmm. That's like my ideal la la land for a number of reasons. One mm-hmm. is I work with a lot of women who have infertility, mm-hmm. but I don't get to see them until two to three years down the road. I'm mm-hmm. kind of like mm-hmm. their last stop. Right. Um, and at that point, it's challenging because a lot of the more naturopathic interventions, I kind of, you know, talk about the slow food movement. I kind mm-hmm. of think about, you know, naturopathic medicine is kind of the slow medicine movement. Right, right. Um, mm-hmm. It takes time to make yep. changes. Yep. Uh, and oftentimes by the time these women are seeing me, they're like, I want to be pregnant yesterday. Like, yep. I don't want to hear that you want to do sort of three to six months of like cleanup and Right. Uh, promoting detoxification and, you right. know, looking all the stuff and right. balancing my hormones. Like, right. I want to get pregnant now. Right. What can we do to get me pregnant like this next cycle? And I'm like, <laughs> right. you know, I have some tools and some things that will work more quickly, but really it takes time. Yeah. Um, if we even think about, you know, the, the egg that will be released in this sort of cycle mm-hmm. started to sort of move out of its... Um, so as sort of you know, but I'll explain sort mm-hmm. of for our listeners. When mm-hmm. we're born, when women are born, when uh, women with ovaries are born, all, you know, we have all of our potential eggs um, kind of stored as like in the state of suspended animation. Right, right, And they right. kind of are with us throughout our whole life, which is why I think eggs are um, a little bit more susceptible to environmental toxins and say sperm are because mm-hmm. sperm are like produced every single day brand new it right. takes them three months to sort of leave the body right but like the sperm that is made today it's gonna leave the body in three months and a new one's coming right behind them they're not right. just hanging out as much so working right. with sort of male factor infertility is sometimes a little bit easier right because you just need to clean up the immediate environment you don't really have to like worry about sort of past exposure and even now we're looking at you know when I was a baby inside of my mom's uterus. Mm-hmm. Her environment was affecting my follicles. Right. So there's this like generational um, effect right. on the sort of ovaries that's more profound, at least as far as we know, than what's going on sort of with the sperm. So you've got these eggs. 
that are in suspended animation. Mm -hmm. And then one, you know, around puberty, once hormones start to cycle, you know, eggs are recruited Mm -hmm. out of their sort of state of suspended animation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and number of follicles start to grow. Mm -hmm. And then I can talk about it like, you know, tryouts for something like all these follicles are auditioning every month. Like, ooh. I'm auditioning for the role of the (laughs) (laughs) egg that will be released. Right. And one is sort of picked. But that um, recruitment process is actually a three-month process. Hmm. So the Mm -hmm. egg that is um, released in this cycle actually started to be sort of drawn out and um, influenced by the hormones three months before. So that that pre-mester or that sort of Mm -hmm. preconception three months Mm -hmm. is – equally important because especially when it comes to things like uh, folate status, zinc status, Mm -hmm. vitamin D, iron, Mm -hmm. all of that, Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. those eggs are sort of being recruited and the number one pick is kind of coming to the forefront, all of that is going to influence the health of the um, subsequent embryo and fetus and things like that. So the preconception, really during those preconception months, we want women to be acting as if they are already pregnant. Right. Um, Right. So that means making sure they're getting a good source of dietary folate as well as probably some supplemental methylated folate, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. avoiding environmental toxins. So Mm -hmm. I'm pretty hardcore about environmental toxins. I'm Mm -hmm. like, yeah, no, Mm -hmm. we're not doing acrylic nails. Mm -hmm. Not, you know, um, look at your, all of your body products, nothing on your skin that you wouldn't put in your mouth. Right. Um, decreasing, you know, Decreasing alcohol, I'm not like a super hardcore, I tend to be a little bit more European, like, hey, a glass of wine or beer here mm-hmm. or there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. during the conception phase and mm-hmm. during sort of the later stages of pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Probably mm-hmm. most women don't even mm-hmm. want to think about a glass of wine during the first trimester <laughs> anyway. Right. Right. Sort of mm-hmm. Position mm-hmm. took care of that for us. I'd be like, that sounds disgusting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, decreasing caffeine. Mm-hmm looking more towards an unprocessed diet, you know, all of that stuff really should start three months before. But the reason I say I want to work with people starting a year before Mm -hmm. is that if there's any underlying issues, like if a woman has PCOS, if she has irregular cycles, if she has significant nutrient deficiencies, if her adrenals or thyroid or all of those things, if those are dysregulated, we want to work on those first because it's going to take time. Right. So we want to have that like six to 12 month window where she's like, oh, yeah, I don't even want to get pregnant yet. Like, cool, let's take the time. Let's sort of take the slow road so that when I am ready, you're like, I know, you know, I always talk about um, fertility awareness method. Mm -hmm. How do you know when you're ovulating? Mm -hmm. You know, all of those Mm -hmm. things so that when women Mm -hmm. are really ready, they feel sort of um, literate with their bodies. Right. Kind of vibed up and just ready to go so that we are more likely to sort of be able to conceive at that point Mm -hmm. when sort of what people are ready versus again waiting until there's a problem to address it right so again comes you know comes back to preventative medicine um and and listen i mean we know as we said earlier and both of us have kids and you you know everybody knows you you do almost anything 
to help your kids to try and keep them safe, to to help them be healthy, to help them develop and mature, you know, well and properly and everything. And we're saying, hey, let, let's back that up a second. And it's not just about, you know, what school do they go to and, and you know, all that other stuff. But we're actually saying, look, that some of the things that you're doing even before you become pregnant can set the stage for what's going on for that person. So, for example, you know, we, we have studies that have come out that showed, again, it, like if your grandmother smoked, your grandmother, if your grandmother smoked, your mom doesn't even have to smoke, but if your grandmother smoked, you, the grandchild has an increased risk of getting asthma, which yeah. is like, you know, so we we're, we see a kid with asthma and we're thinking, okay, well, could it be, you know, various foods they're eating or other allergens in their environment or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, and, and all that's important and all that plays a role, but even part of it could have been the fact that grandmother you know, was smoking back, yeah. uh, you know, and so it's wild. It's it's crazy. And it can make people feel very, very guilty. And that's not not the point at all. Yeah. Okay. And if you, you know, if you weren't doing all of those things, I always say, you know what, mm-hmm. if your body was healthy enough to get pregnant and sustain a pregnancy, you mm-hmm. were doing something right, right. Everything's right. going to be fine. We right. have there's we have to at some point, you know, trust the inherent wisdom of the body that like, because people will be like, oh my God, I didn't know and I wasn't doing this and I wasn't doing that. Right. And I'm like, you know what? It's, you know, we do the best that we can with the information we have at the time. 100%. 100%. All we can do. Right. And we want to balance out, you know, stress is so important. Right. And especially for women, I think there's this like perfectionistic tendency that right. can sort of make all of this feel really rigid. Right. Um. And I talk about health being sort of flexible. Yes. Like when people are truly healthy, I want them to have flexibility around diet, right. flexibility around, you know, routines to sort of mm-hmm. be resilient. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm always tempering sort of my talk about like, hey, optimally, these are some of the things we want to work out right. with. It should also be fun. Right. Like you right. shouldn't be torturing yourself. You're not trying to be on this right. super strict routine. Right. We just kind of pick the things that you think are going to make the biggest impact and slowly sort of start to make those changes and balance it out with sort of some sort of deep acceptance and understanding and sort of gentleness with yourself because there's nothing like, you know, that comes along with parenthood. And I think specifically motherhood is all of a sudden it triggers this like, uh, oh, my God, I'm screwing everything up mentally. (laughs) (laughs) My kids are going to, you know, I could, you know count to, you know, count to infinity with the things that I thought I would never do once I had kids that now that I've had kids, I'm like, oh yeah, I just did that. Right. I I always make a joke and it's totally true. I was an awesome parent before I had kids, right? Absolutely. And then you're like, everything. uh Uh-huh. And then you're like, oh, right. So um, I'll I'll just, the the famous example, and I still haven't totally caved, like um, when TVs first started getting installed in cars. And so then you'd, you know, you'd be driving down the road and you'd see the kids in the backseat watching the TV. I'd always get up on my high horse and be like, like, it's so bad. I'm never going to do that. There's no way. And and I, I still haven't caved to doing that. But now, um, after, you know, many car rides with kids and stuff, I'm like, right, I totally get. I see get. the appeal. I see the appeal. Totally we get don't it. Have a, we don't have the cars or the TVs in it, much mm-hmm. to my husband. My husband is really, I think, you know, I think every health conscious person should mm-hmm. sort of be balanced out by their spouse. <laughs> 
Uh-huh. Because he definitely, my husband is like, you know, he's on board for the most part, mm-hmm. but he's kind of like the fun guy, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. he's more like, what? They're just some cartoons. Who cares? Let's right. go get ice cream. And I'm like, right. all right, you're right. You know, we're living right. in the world. Right. We don't need to do everything perfectly. Right. Like, fun is also important. Cor- totally. But I do kind of say, so, but my rule is we live in Colorado and we um, drive out. My family has a house about an hour and a half or two hours, depending on the weather, up in the mountains. And mm. as soon as we get outside mm. of any drive that's going to last longer than 45 minutes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay. You kids can watch something. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you've got your little iPad. There's, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I've got some rules around like what shows, obviously, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. no violence, no fast cut editing, mm-hmm. no branding. Right. I always try to, you know, have a strong uh, female lead. Those are all important. <laughs> sure. Totally. Things for right. what I'm choosing. But like, right. yeah, sometimes you're just like, okay, there's ideal. And then there's what are we all going to do to survive right. this with no casualties? Right, right. You know, I mean, there's a couple things. What what I always say, totally in line with what you're talking about, is, you know, health is a vehicle. Health, you know, allows us to do things with our life. Health should not be the ultimate goal of life because I've seen plenty of people, you know, they come in and, you know, on paper and, you know, in, 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 in 3D color, they're like magnificent. You know, their body composition may be awesome and they're strong and they're fit and, you know, like their, their diet is meticulous. And, and, and all these factors are in place and their blood work is just miraculous and everything. But you start digging down and you're just like, you know, how about connection with, with others, with yourself, with the world? How about fun? What brings you joy? Like what brings meaning and purpose to your life? And you find out that, you know, some of these people, they've got none of that. And it's sort of like, you know, the whole day is around, you know, getting super healthy. And it's sort of like, you know, my opinion, again, everybody does what 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 works for them, but you're kind of missing the boat. Like you want to be healthy and functional and strong and fit and and feel good so that you can experience joy and connection, pleasure, you know, meaning and commitment to things that are that are worthwhile for you, all, all that stuff. And so anyway, yeah, just yeah, you I love know. that. I love health as a vehicle. And I mean, yeah. like, where are you going? Right. Right? Like, you can't take it with you. Like, right. the person that's in the most optimal health when they die is still dead. Like, right, right, right. And, you know, need, yeah. You need to be, I, you know, and then there is certainly, obviously, as you know, because you work with a lot of people with sort of chronic health conditions, right. a time and a place for, like, yeah, we need to be sort of on a stricter diet. Totally. We need, you know, it, it's kind of flexibility within what your health will allow so that you can still right. enjoy yourself. Right. Right. Absolutely. You know, the, the flip side of this is, you know, people going, well, like, you know, F it, I'm just going to die anyway. So I'm just going to like, you know, eat McDonald's three times a day and like yep. never exercise and not do any of this stuff. And it's like, well, again, it's your choice. You do whatever. But, you know, it's like there's a balance here where, yeah. you know, we do have to do some things that maybe aren't immediate gratification, like get some exercise when we don't feel like it. Maybe, you know, push away the ice cream sundae uh, when we really would like to eat it and, you know, yeah. do some, go to bed earlier than we want to all, you know, uh, all the time, all the time you know, you know? That's, my, that's the struggle of my life. I right. always, my perfect world, I'd be up to like one or in the morning <laughs> puttering around doing stuff and uh-huh. I've been putting uh-huh. myself to bed every night at 1030 and mm-hmm. I feel so much better when right. I do it. But in the moment, I'm like, right. oh, I could get one more thing done. Right. right. And I wanted to say, too, with the, the idea of kind of perfectionism in parenting, and again, I think part of it is a lot of us, um, you know, we're deriving our sort of, uh, 
you know, knowledge and, 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 um, you know, the picture that we're holding up from sort of these idealistic pictures of, you know, people's best efforts on Facebook or social media, oh, yeah. you know, because it's always, um, there, you know, similar, right? There's these funny, um, uh, there, there's these funny uh, feeds or whatever, and it's like – I think they're called like Instagram fails or whatever. It's where people, you know, like someone will make this beautiful baked good or this beautiful artsy, craftsy type thing. And then you're like, cool, I could do that. And then, then they're showing like people's failures and real-world examples of trying to, to do the same thing. And I think um, – and they're just funny and everybody, you know, gets a good laugh at themselves. And, and sort of, you know, on social media – we always tend to put our best face forward uh, most of the time. And you're seeing like, well, my kids are so great. My life is so great. Everything's so great. And, and honestly, you know, you, you dig a millimeter beyond sort of that, that surface and you find out, you know, everyone is human. Everyone is struggling with issues. Um, you, you know, there is no such thing as a perfect life. And pretending that there is only makes things so much worse for everybody. I think that's very true. And, you know, I talk, I work a lot with um, postpartum depression and postpartum mm -hmm. anxiety. Mm -hmm. And sometimes just like postpartum, what is normal now? Like right. I used to be this person. Who am I now? Mm -hmm. And again, I think people have this perception like everybody else is having more fun than me. Mm -hmm. Everybody else's kids are more well-behaved than my mm -hmm. kids are. Mm -hmm. No, that's where that's why I think like, you know, having, you know, postpartum community again, mm -hmm, the fact mm -hmm. that we were never meant to raise our kids in isolation. Like right. the idea of raising a family as like a single unit with like a mom and a dad and multiple kids, like right. that's not a model that has ever been tested before in human history up until like industrialization. Right. And right now. Like right. there was always moms and aunts and women who were also sort of having their babies at the same time and right. they were all playing together and right. it wasn't like, Hey, I'm sitting, you know, you know, in the suburbs, 10 miles from anywhere that has like people outside of cars or houses right. in a house with like a toddler and a baby. Right. And I feel like I'm going to lose my mind. It's like, yeah, that's not normal. Right. Like that's isolating. It's boring. Like people don't really talk about like raising kids can sometimes be really boring. Right. Um, yeah. it's like this, who do I talk to? Like, you guys are cute. It's like, it's like, there's those moments of like pure joy and bliss in parenting. And then those are like surrounded by like a fair amount of sometimes like stuff that's kind of tedious and boring. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. I got to make the lunches. Right. Okay. I got to clean up. Oh, you're throwing stuff on the ground. Let me, you know, it feels like this never ending sort of cycle. Um, right. right. And I think just having people be more honest with each other. And that's yeah. sort of the benefit of having community or yep. like being involved in postpartum moms groups. Yep. Um, and really, you know, I always try, like, I'm actually pretty conscious with, you know, I don't do a lot of social media stuff, mm -hmm. but I'm pretty conscious about like not just posting the highlights. Like, mm -hmm. I'll post things and be like, yeah, look both kids are sick. This is really sucky right now. Like, yeah. Somebody, yeah. <laughs> can somebody commiserate with me or like my house is trash. This is, you know, this um, is real life. Yeah. Because I yeah. think we look at, especially, you know, people be like, Oh, you're a naturopathic doctor. Oh, you know, you're a midwife. You do these sort of seasonal cleanse programs. Like mm -hmm. your mm -hmm. diet's probably like perfect. Or mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. you wouldn't really understand like, Oh, or I'll like see people at the grocery store. They're like, don't look in my cart. There's like, <laughs> there. yep. Yep. And I'm like, I'm just like a normal person who eats chips, yep. Not, you know, yep. um, but I think we have to sort of 
try to cultivate that like vulnerability and openness in people and be right. like, hey, right. we're all just sort of doing our best. Right. It's not and, fun for everybody all of the time because no. I think that disconnect people have is where we get into sort of the um, – a lot of that postpartum depression is this is way harder than I thought it was yeah. because nobody ever told me how hard it was. Right. Like I just saw, you know, the cute pictures on Instagram. I just like heard the stories, this narrative that new moms kind of have to say is, right. oh, it's hard, but it's so worth it. It changed my life. This is all I want to do. These kids are sort of my joy and my mm-hmm. heart and blah, 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 which mm-hmm. is all true. Mm-hmm. But there's the and part of it, which is for a lot of people, like this is the hardest work they've ever done right nobody is sleeping we kind of have this myth of like oh babies should be sleeping through the night by like three months i'm like i have literally never met that baby Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like that's not biologically normal like babies wake up all of the time right waking up all of the time right until they're like three or four sometimes and that's still normal like people come to me and bring their kid in and they're like oh my kid still wakes up once a night what's wrong i'm like and their kid's like three i'm like Oh, yeah, they're just biologically normal. Sorry. Right. Uh, right. We can talk about strategies around that. Mm-hmm. But we have so many myths about, like, what it's supposed to look like because people, you know, only share those highlights or, you know, we've got these cultural ideas of, like, children should be seen and not heard and they should be, like, quiet and well-behaved and in bed and, you know. Right. Um, I'm like, yeah, that doesn't really happen. Right. And then when it's not happening, people think, oh, it's me. Yes. Like, I'm screwing it up. I'm failing. I should be liking this more. Um, And that's where I think so much of the postpartum stuff comes from is just that like that feeling of isolation and that feeling of Mm. failure and that feeling Mm. of like, I thought it was going to be different. So the takeaways then we would say for, you know, for anyone um, who's listening after they have the baby is, you know, frequent, they should have frequent contact and support from, from their their birth attendant essentially, or, or if they went the conventional route, then maybe having a, a lactation consultant. Lactation Postpartum uh-huh. doulas can mm-hmm. be great. Mm-hmm. I think mom's groups a lot. Like I know Seattle mm. has like peps groups. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, depending on the city where people live, but peps groups are, um, I can't remember what peps stands for, but mm. it's basically like peer to peer. You get together with a group of people in your neighborhood and mm-hmm. have like a facilitated discussion once mm. a week with with people who have kids that were born around the same time mm. Mm. great and everybody gets together and then it's like normalizing experience you're like is your baby sleeping is your baby fussy is your baby doing this are you like super exhausted right did you realize how much laundry there was associated with <laughs> children uh-huh. um, and it just is normalizing their experience i mean there's so much you know of that human connection that's gonna you know drive that oxytocin and mm-hmm. you know that mm-hmm combat that isolation. So yeah, I think in one degree, if, you know, people need to know what is their plan for postpartum, Mm. like if they are delivering, um, in a more conventional hospital model, like Mm -hmm. who do they call in that first six weeks if they have a problem? Mm -hmm. I recommend people have a lactation consultant Mm -hmm. that they've met with prior to birth Mm. that has a good reputation, Mm -hmm. not necessarily somebody assigned by the hospital because oftentimes hospital-based lactation consultants don't really have that much advanced training. Mm. There are some amazing gems out there, Mm -hmm. but there's also some folks who really aren't as um, driven to support breastfeeding success. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
that they know a lactation consultant, that if there's any history of depression, anxiety, mood disorders, that mm -hmm. they've already met and established a relationship with a therapist that specializes in perinatal health. Mm. Because when you're in it, mm -hmm. like you don't know that you're in it. Mm. And oftentimes you're so overwhelmed, like the idea of like scheduling a meet and greet, calling to see what your insurance coverage is, mm. blah, blah. It's mm -hmm. too hard. So, so many women are like, oh, I didn't really realize I had postpartum depression until a year later when I stopped being depressed. And then I looked back and realized how miserable I felt. Hmm. Um, so, you know, if you have any concerns, definitely talking to your healthcare providers, but also kind of making a contingency plan um, and talking to your sort of friends and family members. Be like, hey, if you, you know, feel like something's out of the ordinary, like, please talk to me about it. Like, I think oftentimes we don't want to offend people and be like, hey, how's your mood? Yeah. Like, are you okay? Yeah. You know, so much of like the postpartum period is people are like, how's the baby? How's the baby? Are right. you getting any sleep? And you're like, no, I'm not sleeping. The baby's fine. Yeah. Um, I always make it a, you know, even the people who aren't my patients, obviously any woman who comes in postpartum who's a patient of mine, we're talking about sort of mood, anxiety, what's normal, what's mm -hmm. not normal. Mm -hmm. But women that I just know, you know, personally, I just ask about their health. Yeah. Like, hey, how are you feeling? Yeah. How is your mood? Are you feeling anxious at all? It can be normal to feel anxious, but it shouldn't, you know, be the predominant emotion. Right. And just have the conversation. Right. Um, but especially women who are worried about postpartum depression, uh, have any family history, uh, oftentimes women who get pretty significant PMS, hmm. like irritability, mood stuff with PMS, sometimes mm -hmm. I kind of think like, oh, postpartum, you know, those hormones are going to are gonna be playing another role. Right. Um, and just making a plan and then being like, who are you going to hang out with? Mm. Who's going to help you? Who's mm -hmm. going to cook food for you? Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, the a woman's only job in the first six weeks after having a baby should be putting a fork to her mouth and a baby to her breast. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. it. Mm. Not cleaning not cooking, not childcare, because the amount of time you invest in that healing that happens in the first six to 12 weeks postpartum, mm -hmm. that's how you're going to feel for the next couple of years. Mm. So you mm. might feel okay mm -hmm. at two weeks and start being like, ooh, I should, you know, I'm going to start, you know, working out again because I saw on Us Weekly I should have my post-baby body back. Right. Uh, you know, I need to keep my house up to these standards that are sort of made up standards in my mind about how perfect things need to be. Right. And then at four months and six months when the hormones, kind of that early adrenaline rush of having a baby wears off, mm -hmm. that's where I see people just crash and just feel terrible. Mm. Um and then we go back and they're like, oh, you know, I, you know, at two weeks I started doing X and Y and Z and I was feeling pretty good. So I didn't nap when the baby napped and, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. things like that. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, we don't have, if we look at, for example, like um, the Korean tradition of lying in, which is like there's this very, many cultures have this very prescribed specific postpartum rituals mm. that do with women, uh, which is... You have your relatives come in, they're in charge of taking care of the house, they're feeding you very specific nourishing foods, mm -hmm. so land foods, warm foods, mm -hmm. um, like kanji is mm -hmm. great postpartum, which is sort of a uh, um, traditional Chinese uh, recipe, which is just like very boiled down rice and chicken broth, and you can put some ginger and things like that. Right. Um, They'll be sort of these traditions of like you can't leave the house for 40 days. Like we don't need to be that sort of specific. Right. But 
there was a wisdom to that and there was a reason to that. And I don't think we sort of respect this postpartum period. And that's why I talked to women about like, this is two years when, cause people be like, it's been three months. When do I start feeling, you know, like back to myself, like, right. quote unquote, the new normal. And I'm like, give it two years. Yeah. It doesn't mean you suffer for two years because you feel terrible, right? but it means that you have realistic expectations of what is possible within that period, right? R- like. Right. If you're sleeping four hours a night, like it's gonna be hard to lose weight or feel energetic or you know any of those things. Yep. Um, so understanding the seasonality to it, like this is not the season to be you know remodeling your house or like right. doing these big projects or you know running a marathon unless you sort of really want to run a marathon and then we can figure out a way to do that sort of more supportively. Well, uh, we'd we'd say you almost you are running a marathon. Yeah, right. I mean, running it. It's called keeping a child alive. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. So we'd say, you know, so so Caitlin, in your perfect world, and again, let, let's just be clear: there is no perfect world, and no one's going to do all this stuff, and it's not about shame or guilt or blame or any of those emotions. But if we had a fully supportive society, would we be looking at, you know, obviously education would be there, but then sort of. A year before uh, the couple decided that they were they were really ready and they were going to have kids, we we have both mom and dad, future mom and dad, um, come in and and do some preconception work. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Cleaning up their diet, getting everything you know said uh, from from my world, um, and I know you do too. But you know, making sure blood sugar control is good, inflammation yeah. is under control, any autoimmunity is managed to the very best capacity that that it can be um you know poor or problematic foods have been you know removed or mostly removed from the diet nutrient status is really really good for people um they've done some detoxification work if anybody sort of wants to freak out a little bit but wants to go um see there's there was some work done a number of years ago by the environmental working group where they actually took uh, umbilical cord blood so this is babies oh, who yeah. yeah you you know i'm sure um, <laughs> i know yeah you know of babies who had literally just been delivered and then took the blood from from the umbilical cord and they tested it and found loads and loads of you know problematic and toxic chemicals um in that blood you know so the need to and again it doesn't have to be crazy but it, the longer time frame that you have the the less aggressive and sort of the easier a lot of the treatments become because if you have you know nine to twelve months to do some slow gentle detoxification your regimen's going to be a lot simpler than if we have two months to try yeah. and kind of get you get you good and ready to go yeah right. and then looking at like basics like vitamin d level mm-hmm. uh ferritin mm-hmm. wanting thyroid to be really well controlled right. wanting a Renals to look good. Right. Um, I also talked about people about making space in their life during the preconception period because mm. a lot of people are so busy. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, "Well, I don't have time to meditate or go on a walk." And I'm like, "How do you have time to have a baby then? Because babies right. take up a ton of time." Right. So start to simplify your life now. Like, take some things off the plate. Right. Give yourself space, you know, enjoy yourself, enjoy your partner for a while because right. there's going to be a time after that baby's born where, you know, you can be ships passing in the night and that's right. stressful in and of itself. So right. like right. go on dates, enjoy yourself, right. make the space in your life so right. that you're like, oh, I'm not, you know, out of the house 14 hours a day on this sort of super packed schedule. Right. So, right. Yeah, well, it's the 
conception. It's the classic story we have, right, of women. Uh, I mean, you hear over and over again that they're trying to get pregnant, trying to get pregnant, trying to get pregnant, and then they finally basically give up or, you know, uh, they start adoption process or they just kind of resign themselves. I'm never going to get pregnant. And then once that huge, heavy stress load sitting on top of, of that, that woman's shoulders uh, vanishes, all of a sudden they're pregnant, right? Yeah. So yeah. um, just to your point, you know, making space and room and, and, you know, ramping down your expectations and giving yourself some time um, you know, changes everything. Yeah. Right. So that would be sort of my ideal preconception mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. everybody would have a midwife. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure. And then if as they... long as they sort of remain sort of in low risk. And then if they weren't low risk and mm-hmm. they... Um, did either want or need a hospital or more medicalized birth, they would have a doula with them mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Doulas, I think, are also great for home birth, but I think they are invaluable when it comes to hospital birth because right. um, they kind of put a human a human face on all of that and can help people stick with their choices. And I and um, I would I would argue too that having sort of a plan now of course you know like plans are just plans and nothing usually ever turns out exactly like we want to but yeah. certainly having a plan for what you would like to happen because if you don't have a plan the hospital does right yeah. and if you don't have a plan yeah. and you can't stick with it uh, whoever whether it's a husband or another partner um, who can make space whether it's the doula uh, that can help kind of create boundaries around what's going to happen um, if you're not kind of standing up for yourself and it shouldn't be the woman's job her job is there to give birth um, yeah. then you're going to get most of the time you're going to get swept along in, in the hospital's plan yeah you have to sort of educate yourself about what choices need to be made Mm -hmm. and what those are and are they necessary sort of yes or no Mm -hmm. and then this is sort of where things get really juicy in my ideal world is Mm -hmm. i think you need a year of paid maternity leave minimum we need to be canadians about (laughs) this Mm -hmm. i was in this online moms group postpartum moms group Mm -hmm. um that was like half canadians half americans and Mm -hmm. the canadians were like because women would post Oh, my, you know, three months is over tomorrow. I have to go back to work. And the Canadians were like mortified. They were so yeah. sad. For yeah. They'd be like, oh, my yep. God, I'm so sorry. I can't yep. believe it. Yep. You know, I mean, it's that in and of itself is so problematic. So a year paid maternity leave mm-hmm. and paternity leave. Mm-hmm. You don't mm-hmm. have any paternity leave right. at all paid right. maternity leave in the United States. And again, right. if you compare that across the developed world, like we're way behind in an embarrassing way. Right. Um paid paternity leave or paid mm-hmm. partnership leave or mm-hmm. whoever your partner is like right. everybody gets to stay home and nestle and chill out for at least the first three months and then right. the mom or the woman who is sort of predominantly raising the baby mm-hmm. gets her full year mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and then there's affordable child care how about that <laughs> then once you do want to go back to work you can actually afford child care yeah now we're really getting into a dream world right here. a right. dream world called like Finland. <laughs> right. Somewhere. Well, well, I mean, it's the thing, right? We, we, you know, we're in a country, the United States here, that says, well, we're all about children and the care of children. But then we look at the entire system, we would say, for all the way from preconception, all the way through, you know, childcare and beyond. And we say at almost every level, um, we have done the exact opposite of what we really should be doing if, if we truly care about children, if we tr- truly care about people, um, and, y- you know, we want to give everybody the best chance to have the best life that they can. Yeah. I mean, because then you get people coming in like, 
oh my God, I'm so stressed. It's so hard. And I'm like, yeah, if you have two parents working 40 hour a week mm-hmm. jobs mm-hmm. with one, two more children, like mm-hmm. that's almost unsustainable from an yep. optimal health point of view. Like yep. Yep. when is there time for relaxation? Right. When is there time for movement? When is there time to sort of cook food and source stuff? Right. Um, it's a struggle. And I think like, again, if we kind of are breaking things down in a systemic sort of way, like it starts with creating a culture. So I talk to my families all the time like mm-hmm. how creative can you be mm-hmm. like how creative can we be about building a life that's sustainable like can you work flexible hours right can you work four 10 hour days and get you know a three-day weekend every weekend or have a day at home where the kids are at school where you can do the chores and go shopping and then actually enjoy yourself on the weekend right and one of the parents work 30 hours or work part-time is there you know like can both people work 30 hours like what's the how can you create this life that's more sustainable because our default model yeah doesn't work for doesn't work for most people. Right. And I'll just say, you know, on the on the other side here, Caitlin, working with, you know, a lot of people with chronic diseases and everything, we see that, you know, this whole experience of trying to be the perfect mom and trying to juggle, you know, a full time, you know, job job, then a full time, you know, raising kids, then a full time taking care of a family, then, a you know, trying to have hobbies and outside friends and stay fit and do all of these things utterly destroys a lot of people's health. I mean, we see oh, a yeah. lot of women who Absolutely. crash who, and burn, who trying, you know, to live this this sort of ideal life or, or you know, from a, from purely like a health perspective, having kids was one of the worst things that they could have done for themselves in the current society that we live in. Yeah, because yeah. there's no support. And then, right. you know, you take somebody whose health maybe was on the brink and then you right. throw in sort of the physical and emotional demands of pregnancy and labor and the sleep deprivation postpartum and the hormonal shifts and all of that. And yeah, oftentimes when I see women, I'd say the number one, you know, I see so many people for fatigue, mm-hmm. food, things like that. And I'll be like, when's the last time you remember feeling good? And it's, Oh, before I had kids. Right. Yep. And I'm like, yeah, yep. I get that. How do we change it? Um, right. And right. that's again, that's like, you know, when me and you are like, president of the world (laughs) you can form a team yes totally and get all this stuff shifted because it does come from you know i tell people building a sustainable happy life in this culture is swimming upstream yes like you have to make conscious choices you have to make sacrifices you have to decide that that's your priority yep because if you just kind of swim along with the tide and the current yep and kind of what's expected of you and what everybody else is doing like you're going to end up not feeling good yep. and not having as much fun as you could be having and yep. things like that. So yep. it, it really takes time to kind of stop, examine all your choices, figure out like what is something I'm doing because it sort of brings me and my family joy and health and what am I doing because it's like an expectation. Right. What can I take off my plate? Right. How do we simplify? How do we minimize? Um, and that's really sort of a key underlying step, I think, to getting people towards optimal health yeah. is really – creating that lifestyle to support it because you can sort of supplement yourself till the cows come home and you can take every food out of your diet and do your prescribed, you know, 45 minute high intensity interval training right. every single day. Right. And still be totally miserable. Yep. Um, yep. We don't want people to be miserable. We nope. want them to have fun right. and be, you know, healthy and happy and nice to be around. Yeah. 
Well, and again, if health, you know, health is a vehicle and what do you do with it? You know, and so I, I'm 100 percent in, in agreement with you that obviously, you know, we're coming at this from an individual level. Someone is realizing that, you know, either their health is not in a place that they want it to be or, you know, they're they are they're stopping for a moment. They're questioning sort of the, the path that, you know, society itself is driving people down and they're saying, well, wait, hang on a second. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily want to go in that direction. And so on one level, you know, we're, we're lucky enough, you and I and, and many of the people we see have the privilege of having some extra resources or some extra education, some extra time that we're aware of these. We can we can choose to make choices like, you know, I always think, you know, yeah, absolutely. It's like for, for my family, um, you know, we got a midwife on board. We got a doula on board. We used a birth center, um, you know, and, and some of that health insurance could could pay for some of that. And some of it we had to pay out of pocket for it. And we were lucky enough to be in a place. And and, and we did definitely prioritize and, and do the things we needed to, but we were lucky to be in a place we could make some of those choices. And we know, just like in so many else, uh, so many other areas with food choices, um, you know, with all of these things, that um, until we make a change as a society, it's always going to be individuals swimming upstream. And and so we know, you know, yes, we can do that. I think. One of the points I took out of our conversation today, Caitlin, was banding together at that small level of saying, you know, whether it's a, a, a woman's support group of other moms who've recently given birth or um, some veteran, older veteran women who've been through the experience and can be involved or healthcare practitioners who, who can provide um, that, that good level of support for people. We'd also say reaching out, you know, in like the food and other areas, like if you're a member of like a CrossFit gym or paleo group groups, because a lot of people listen, are involved in some of those movements. It's, you know, how can you reach out into those communities and get and form mutual support structures for people? So, you know, like we said, uh, I know some people, they get together, um, they have big potlucks where everyone brings large dishes of food and they divvy things up and share among families or, um, you know, getting more support so that sometimes, you know, it's not a bad thing. Sometimes mom needs to step away from the kids um, and go to the spa oh, yeah. or go for a walk or, you know. I like that spa days for moms. Right. You know, or, um, or, uh, you know, uh, we've had it before, like, you know, go rent a hotel or a motel for a day or two. And your job is just to get as much sleep, um, and, and just be away from the kids as you possibly mm-hmm. can, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's not a bad thing and it doesn't make you a bad mom. You know, we see a lot of, uh, you know, to our point earlier, people will do anything for their kids up to and including, you know, severely neglecting themselves. Yeah. And that's, that's, yeah. And I see that all the time. And that's, you know, the idea yeah. of you need to be able to show up and not just be physically there, but like yeah. mentally and emotionally right. and spiritually right. like right. present and available. Right. And if that means taking like an hour to go for a walk and leaving your kids with a neighbor or your mom or, you know, negotiating right. times with your partner, like, Hey, right. you get a couple hours this weekend. I get a couple hours next weekend. Like right. 
it's not just your physical presence your kids need. Like they need you to be healthy and happy. Yeah. yeah. Well, we always say it's that 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 you know most people know the oxygen mask on the airplane, and you know like yeah. your your first instinct is if those masks come down, you know get them on your kids and everything, make sure that they're safe. But just like in that instance, you know if you don't take a second to care for yourself first, you're not going to be able to care for those other people that you love. And it, I know it's a hard sell sometimes for women who are chronically ill and sick and saying like it's like well you know I don't have time I got to care for my kids and it's almost like I'm sorry. You, know, you almost need to neglect your kids a little bit, right? A little bit, right? But a not benign, a little benign <laughs> little, neglect goes you know. a long way. I think uh-huh. you know a yep. whole other topic could be the over, <laughs> the over cultivation <laughs> of our delicate little flowers. Yep. I think sometimes, like you know, wild, let them be wildflowers. Right. Let them, let right. them fight, fight it out a little bit. Right. Right. Oh, so totally. So many more. And uh, we'll have to see about arranging another talk uh, sometime not too distant, yeah, Caitlin. We can, we can uh, just chat it up forever. We can, we can definitely. There's a lot of pieces. There's a lot, you know, unfortunately, like so much else in health, uh, the whole issue around getting pregnant, being pregnant, supporting moms, caring for families and everything. Um, you know, we're in a society that, that unfortunately has just got so much of it backwards and wrong. And then we wonder why, you know, People's health are suffering. Kids' health are suffering. You know, we've got all these other issues. And and so much of it is, you know, it's like taking a plant that should grow in good, healthy soil and putting it in crappy soil and then going like, what's wrong with the plant? And it's almost like nothing is wrong with the plant. It's the, the environment that it's growing in. Mm-hmm. You know, all right. Well, we will we'll wrap things up for today, Caitlin. If people are interested, so, you know, having a good healthcare team is just in everything is so critical and having a good birth team and after support team and everything is so critical. So we're saying their options include reaching out to midwives of all stripes and shades, whether they're nurse midwives or I'm sorry, what was the other term you used as well? Uh, certified professional midwives. Certified professional midwives. Okay. And like anybody, you need to vet their experience. You need to make sure that you're maybe even more so that you're really comfortable with that person and that you guys, yeah. uh, you know, that you align properly. Um, but, but having that support team on your side is just so critically important. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. We can't can't do it alone. We cannot do it alone. That's an interesting, and maybe for another time, I have seen, and it's a very, very fringe movement, I I think, of women um, having completely unassisted births, right? Sort of just going off by themselves and delivering the baby without any support whatsoever. And you just have to think, uh, it's probably not a good decision in my opinion. You know, I support everyone's ability, you know, everyone healthcare autonomy, right? right? I'm really supportive of people's individual choices, but and ninety seven percent of the time that's probably gonna go okay. But right. having seen some of the things that I have seen, mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, for that one to three percent of the time where there are some interventions that are necessary. Right. You're really going to want to have somebody there. Yeah. But yeah, right. that's a whole other, that's a whole other <laughs> ball of wax. Yeah, yeah. We'll get into that. So Caitlin, if someone wants to look you up, you know, where can they find you? So I have right now, uh, my website is allfamiliesnaturalhealth.com. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be rerouted by in March to drcaitlin.com. Okay. So it's a lot, a lot quicker, easier to get to, D-R-C-A-I-T-L-I-N.com. Okay. Okay. Um, but All Families Natural Health has sort of 
my current information. And then once I get Dr. Caitlin launched, that's going to have more um, programs and articles and just sort of the All Families Natural Health is my personal practice mm-hmm. website. So it's more mm-hmm. sort of geared to sort of that side of things. But okay. I'm going to be expanding to offer folks sort of a little bit more options um, to sort of get information, newsletters, right. kind of fun right. fun stuff like that. Good. And then I also have um, the vitalityproject.co, so it's mm. not .com, it's the vitalityproject.co. Mm-hmm. I do run um, seasonal uh, nutrition programs through mm-hmm. there with uh, that I cre- co-created with a traditional Chinese medicine um, women's health expert, Jessica mm. Goodman. So mm-hmm. have those going on a seasonal basis as well. Awesome. So they can look you up. Are you on? So you said not quite so much social media. Is there anywhere on social Man, media? I am not consistent enough on any of my social media platforms <laughs> right now. Uh, I am on Twitter okay. as I think it's Dr. Caitlin. It might be Dr. Caitlin O, but I think it's Dr. Caitlin. Um, <laughs> okay. I think I'm on Insta. I think my Instagram is also Dr. Caitlin and that's not a sort of private account. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm kind of trying to figure out, you know, my, I've got a three and a half year old and a one and a half year old. Mm-hmm. And as mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. one and a half year old is sort of transitioning from baby to toddler, I'm mm-hmm. starting to have a little bit of extra energy to sort of reinvest into my sort of, um, career life. Mm-hmm. I was sort of in a plateau and a purposeful plateau sure. over the last sort of four years, sure. kind of really focusing my energy elsewhere. And now I kind of feel like, you know, it's, it's like the beginning of spring and I'm kind of like poking my, my head up out of the dirt. Like, okay, mm-hmm. I, I've got some, uh, some energy for mm-hmm. growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's kind of where the new website is coming from. And I've got to really nice. consolidate and decide, all right, if I'm going to do social media in a way that's like meaningful for, yeah. Anybody that's not just like a friend who wants to see pictures of my kids, like right. what platform is that going to be? <laughs> right, right. Uh, and I don't really have a platform that I am active enough on that it's going to be, like I said, right. interesting for anybody. Nice. But if you do want to just kind of see pictures of my kids at Dr. Caitlin on Instagram, <laughs> that's well, there you can promise for now. But someday I'm going to be rolling out sort of more clinical information. And again, yeah. I'm pretty passionate about prenatal care and postpartum health and, and really, you know, just women in general, but mm-hmm. moms especially mm-hmm. really getting the support they need to, to be fully present and enjoy, um, enjoy their, their lives and their yeah. time with their kiddos and families and things yeah. like that. So yeah. I'm going to be building some stuff around that over this next year or two. Nice, nice. Well, exciting. And that's great to put that out there because again, there's so much, um, Lack of information, lack of awareness that we, we really need um, to, to make some big whole scale changes. And, and, you know, I've sort of given up on on a lot of top down changes coming that that so yeah. much of what we have to change has to come from the bottom bottom up. And and the Internet and, and a lot of this um, can help, you know, uh, as individuals, there's relatively little we can do. But when we band together into into groups and demand change that uh, we're, we're seeing that happen. So, yeah, I think that's the way to go. Yep, absolutely. All right, Caitlin. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It was great. Uh, certainly, we're both very passionate, fired up about many of these topics. And, um, you know, there's a lot that women can do both to ensure that they can get pregnant easily, to have, you know, better outcomes for their delivery and to help them through the first period. And then, of course, anything that helps them, you know, helps their baby as well. 
Absolutely. So. All right. Well, thank you so much, Caitlin. We'll have to see you about uh-huh. uh, talking again sometime soon. Right. Okay. Bye. Great All talking right. to you. Uh huh. Bye bye. All right, folks. That wraps up another episode of the Aspire Natural Health Podcast. If you enjoyed it, we hope you've subscribed to us over at iTunes. You can also check us out at our website, www.aspirenaturalhealth.com. That's Aspire is in A S. P-I-R-E, naturalhealth.com. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash aspirenaturalhealth or check out our library of videos over at YouTube. Just go over to YouTube and punch in Aspire Natural Health. You'll find us there. So a couple great more ways you can check out our free educational materials. At Aspire Natural Health, we are experts at treating gut dysfunctions, autoimmune diseases, and other hard-to-treat cases. If you that's you or someone you know, you can always contact us and schedule a free 15-minute consult with myself and find out if we are the right fit and we can help you out with your issues. So simply check us out, check out our website. Again, that's www.aspirenaturalhealth.com or give us a call at 425-202. 7849. You can set up that free 15 minute consult. All right, folks, until we meet again, take care.